it's a new form for me. I usually usually dialogue in the hall, um, but maybe this might be a bit more of a quiet approach uh, since we're in the middle of the retreat. Um, quite a range of questions, uh, quite a few, and um, kind of grouped them together. And let's let's uh, start and see how it goes. I'm curious. So. Uh, one question was, will you plan to give uh, a short definition of what mindfulness means? Sure. Uh, short definition. Uh, mindfulness is the innate form of intelligence uh, uh, that we all share as human beings. We all have the capacity um, to pay attention to our experience in the here and now, in the present moment. Uh, and the quality of that attention, you know, that awareness is is. Uh, free of any preconceptions or judgments, really free of thought, actually, mindfulness. Okay, mindfulness is that capacity. For instance, if you just bring your attention to the contact with the cushion, your capacity to that attention allows you to become aware of those sensations. So if you put your attention on your hand, okay, then you bring your attention, you don't look at the hand, you bring your attention to it, and out of that attention comes that awareness and knowing quality of mind. So mindfulness is attention. It's open-hearted. And in practice, what happens, what we're doing is we're actually strengthening mindfulness. It gets deeper. It gets stronger. It gets steadier uh, with practice. So sometimes we can be mindful, but it might be just kind of a vague awareness. Uh, And other times as we uh, develop uh, the mindfulness more more strongly as we practice, uh, it can penetrate more deeply. It um, Essentially what it's doing is it's shining the light of awareness on whatever we're paying attention to. Okay, so we learn from our experience. And because it's free of preconceptions, uh, no ideas about, like, pain, like for instance, if, if mindfulness meets pain, you encounter pain and you, you're mindful of it, there's no uh, criticism or judgment or aversion to that particular sensation. It's just meeting it, letting you know this, is, this experience is happening and this experience has certain qualities or characteristics. Okay, so, so it's free of value judgments. And so that allows us that capacity to pay attention in that open-hearted, free of judgment way. It allows us to explore it rather than jumping back from it or imposing an idea about it, um, some you know, something we might have picked up in the past, some value judgment or criticism or identification with that pain. So mindfulness is, really, is free of identification. It doesn't claim that experience. It just allows us to see it, experience it directly. And that's, that's so much of what a retreat is about. Retreat's about much more than that, of course. It's about developing other qualities like patience and perseverance and equanimity and loving kindness and compassion so all of those qualities we're developing simultaneously while we're practicing. And many of those qualities are being developed whether we know it or not. And that came up in the group today. Uh, that's true for mindfulness too. You know, all those qualities are developing and we're not necessarily aware um, of what is being developed all the time. You know, sometimes it, we become very aware uh, that we have more compassion and more loving kindness and more mindfulness and more awareness, uh, more presence of mind because you know, mindfulness allows you to meet the present. That's what it's all about. Uh, but we don't always see it. And, and I think it's very important to recognize that 
and, and, it, and um, you know, so often we can sit back and we evaluate and we say, well, our practice is this way, it's not happening, it's not doing this. But, but we're very poor self-evaluators, very poor self-assessors of what our experience is. Um, so, um, so mindfulness, that ability, that innate ability. And, and you, don't have to be, you don't have to meditate to be mindful. Okay? You don't have to meditate to be mindful. It's an innate form of intelligence. One can tap into it in different ways. Um, but what my meditation does is it strengthens it and, is, and it increases the frequency of mindfulness so that it becomes a, an accessible resource. In other words, it becomes an option when you're in a particular situation. I, I, I find that particularly inspiring. I mean, I love the idea of freedom where you can be in a, different, in a situation that you're in and, and you have like a, a optional responses. You know, like you have an alternative response rather than your, just your conditioned reaction. And mindfulness actually facilitates that. Without mindfulness, it's very difficult to know, you know what's happening or to even be aware that there's an option, that you could relate to it in a different way. And that's, to me, that's like the heart of, of Buddhist meditation. It's just that recognition uh, that you can respond uh, not so much from a conditioned place, uh, but it's spontaneously, in the moment, in an appropriate, skillful way. Like this, that mindfulness leads to wisdom and discernment. Someone asked about discernment. Mindfulness facilitates discernment because we know what our experience is. And then it's, it's up to us. You know, it's always a, it's, discernment or wisdom is, is not as uh, simple as mindfulness. Mindfulness lets us know what our experience is. Discernment is knowing what your experience is and then discerning what the skillful response is. So for instance, in a sitting, mindfulness will let you know that your body's hurting, okay, that there's knee pain or that there's back pain or, or that there's tension in your shoulders. Okay, so mindfulness just lets us know that, kind of registers that, oh yeah, uh, the body's hurting. And then, then, it's, then the question is, and, and this, is, this is why we're developing other qualities of mind, um, then we take a look at that experience and it's up to each individual person. There's no formula in terms of how we're supposed to respond to that. It's really a subjective thing. But basically what we don't want to do necessarily is respond out of reactivity. You know, mindfulness creates space around the experience because it's just letting us know it. And in that space we can say, hey, you know, maybe I need to stand up. That seems like that's the compassionate thing to do right now. I'm struggling too much. You know, I'm feeling overwhelmed. So maybe I'll sit in a chair. You know? and, and that could easily be discernment and the wise and compassionate thing to do. But it's mindfulness that lets you know that you're having that experience. Because if we don't know we're having the experience, then we're caught by it. And we don't really see that there are options or, or, or choices in terms of what to do with that experience. Okay? So we live very unconsciously without mindfulness. We play out our habits. So mindfulness that very simple form of intelligence allows us to live uh, our life uh, letting go of habits along the way and making wiser choices. So it's a very creative process. That's what I think of mindfulness. I think of it as extremely creative. Uh, it's not passive. You know, it's not like you're observing your experience from the distance. It brings you up very close to your experience because there's no uh, preconceptions about it. You just get right direct to it. You know, it's so straightforward. Uh, but in that straightforwardness, because it's so open-hearted, it opens up creative possibilities. 
So if you're in a difficult situation, you're dealing with a loss, or you're dealing with change, or you're dealing with different situations that we all encounter one time or another, a lot of times if, if there isn't mindfulness, we just get caught in it. You know, we get, we get swept away by the people that were around, by the reactions, by our history, by our legacy, our conditioning. And so that's called living a life unconscious. You know, one person asked about what the relevance of mindfulness practice is to living on this planet. I'm kind of paraphrasing in a pretty big way. But of course, just think about that. You, know, uh, you develop the inner resources for yourself. You, know, you develop the wisdom and compassion, but that allows you to be a resource to others. So you do your effort. You're working on yourself. But there's a ripple effect, a major ripple effect for the folks that you come in contact with or for the kind of a- actions and service that you provide others. You, know, you become part of the solution, you know, rather than just responding to either cultural conditioning or uh, collective fear, collective anger, what the Buddha described as ignorance or delusion. You're lifting yourself out of that place of delusion and living with much more clarity. So even though there's so much more to the path than mindfulness, it really is the key. And the beauty of it is it's accessible. So one can actually practice and strengthen mindfulness. So it's not about some spiritual ideal. It's not something that's inaccessible. It's not something that um, only special people can do or you have to go to IMS in order to be mindful. No. You don't have to come here to be mindful. You, you, You could be mindful at any moment. Remembering to be mindful is the trick, once you know what it is. See, a lot of people don't even know what it is. It's kind of what we're talking about. But once you know it, then the the trick is to remember it. And that's where the practice comes in. And when when practitioners have practiced mindfulness for a while, it gets stronger and it gets developed. And it it really does, just like our thinking mind can be a, a source of intelligence, it can be a resource, it also can work against us, we all know that. Mindfulness becomes... A resource, in other words, remembering to do it, knowing that you have that capacity to just be with your experience, to be with the pain and the suffering or whatever you're encountering, um, that that becomes part of how you live your life, consciously, connected to the present, rather than being preoccupied or disconnected. Mindfulness leads to more connection. You know, folks here. All of us, we've left our homes, and I don't think there's anybody in this room that lives at IMS. I don't see any staff people, do I? No, I don't think so. so and if, even if they're living here, it's probably not for long. It's usually a place where people can live for a while and then move on. Um, hmm. Sometimes mindfulness doesn't help with memory. Just lost my train of thought. What was the, what was the point in that? Maybe it was pointless. I don't know. Uh, point of that. Mindfulness. What does it do? I don't know. Do you get any idea? <laughs> what? About lefting, leaving home? Yeah, we're well, we all left home, I guess. That's the point. <laughs> we'll move on. That was just the first question. <laughs> I want to get to a lot of these if I can. Uh, could you please say more about the value of walking meditation in mindfulness practice? 
I have difficulty with keeping single point of focus. Well, you know, with this, all the stimulation, the person's saying, like, because you're walking, you can see people walking by you, and it might not feel as quiet um, as when you're sitting in a hall and your eyes are closed and the body's not moving, and it's, you know, there's less stimuli coming, certainly visual stimuli, and maybe even body sensations, it's not as much. So, yeah, I would say the walking meditation is invaluable. It's an invaluable aspect of insight practice. Uh, and we, um, the orientation at the Insight Meditation Center here, um, the walking practice is, is very significant. And for a lot of very practical reasons, one is it certainly helps balance the energy from the sitting. You know, a lot of folks have been struggling or working with, not necessarily struggling, but working with sleepiness as a part of their practice. Well, walking helps balance that energy. You know, and I said it earlier on when I gave the walking instructions, how walking more quickly, maybe walking outside for a little while, some fresh air, but the walking, moving the body back and forth can generate some energy uh, and balance the system. So that's one um, benefit. Another benefit of the walking meditation is, sure, it may, it may for some folks actually, it, feel, it feels like you are being more mindful during the walking practice than you are in the sitting. And with very common reports is that the tendency when you close your eyes and you sit, there's a lot of spacing out, but then when you do the walking, there's more remembering, you know, because you might be focusing on the bottoms of your feet, and so there's in a sense more presence, and and so people are different, but also um, it changes a lot. You know, there's been times when I've really you know gotten into long sittings and not that much walking, and other times it's really flipped around where I I really felt like I really needed to walk, and I'd walk for pretty long period of time, and then I'd sit for a shorter period of time than I might normally. Um, so, so when you're doing a retreat, not so much this, this retreat, but longer retreats or say a three-month course, you can experiment with different times for different lengths of time for, for doing walking practice. Uh, but walking practice is crucial for developing, I think, a more integrated practice sometimes than in the sitting. Because it is more stimulating. You are seeing things. Your body is moving. You are sometimes, we're all in relationship with each other, even if we're just sitting with our eyes closed. But I think when you're moving around, um, again, you're getting a little closer to what your daily life looks like. And so for me, the, mind, the walking practice um, kind of helps us ground. You know, because when we leave here, you know, we're moving about the city, moving from our car to someplace else, if we, if we can rest our attention in the body every once in a while, it's tremendously useful for bringing you back into the present. And it, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily just going to stay with your body, but it's a vehicle to come back and connect really to the activity or, or uh, situation that you find yourself in. And so the walking practice is tremendously invaluable uh, on that level. Um, it definitely can support in a significant way, the sitting practice, just like the sitting practice can support uh, the walking practice. It, it, it significantly helps if you do the walking practice as fully as you can. You know, it, it, it's a tremendous benefit to walk, sit, walk, sit. You know, to do that, that continuity, that continuous style of practice, uh, because the mind definitely can settle more quickly than when you're taking a lot of breaks or you're just you know, doing stuff uh, because you're tired of it or, or, you, you're, or you're bored or something else seems more interesting. You know, kind of trying to stick with it. 
but when you're doing it, you're trying to relax into it. So you're not, you're not doing it with that spirit of imposing or pressuring yourself or making it something grim, but you're recognizing that if you do the practice in a steady way, the mind will get quieter, the mindfulness will get stronger, and out of that continuity of mindfulness, insight arises. So the walking is, um, we, we consider it just as significant as the sitting. Certainly we do it, uh, teachers at CIMC definitely do, that's for sure. Okay, so here's a, a very profound and deep question. On the whole, I'm a very patient person, and I came with absolutely no expectations. It's kind of nice, huh? However, out of curiosity, will I become enlightened by noon on Wednesday? (laughs) I won't ask who wrote that. So will you become enlightened? I hope so. <laughs> you know, there's a well-known book by Mahasi Saidao, who's really a major 20th century Burmese Vipassana uh, meditation master. He came here. Um, he was quite old when he came here. He came to IMS in the late 70s. And, you know, he, he was, in some ways, he was a revolutionary teacher because he brought insight meditation to lay practitioners. You know, predominantly, if you go to Asia, you'll see mostly monastics practicing, and he 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 included lay practitioners in the in the practice itself. And he wrote several books that were called, you know, related to insight meditation. It's a whole series. And um, in the early days of uh, Vipassana coming to the West, they they you know they were a reference point to some extent. Um, not always, I don't think, always a useful reference point. I hope I don't go to hell for that. Uh, but they weren't always. Useful, I didn't think, um, but he had this um, um, teaching where he, he thought if you could uh, completely stay mindfully, be mindful continuously, with no gaps, that you could get fully enlightened in seven days. <laughs> it's true. So you can imagine that's not so useful <laughs> to most of us. <laughs> who may never be continuously mindful for seven days. But, uh, you know, he had this real map of how it, how it looked. And, uh, you know, be, and he, what he meant by con- continuity of mindfulness was continuity of mindfulness, literally moment-to-moment continuity of mindfulness. And there are many moments. If, if you're being really continuously mindful, uh, there's... In just even in one activity, there's a lot of moments of mindfulness. And so the emphasis for him was, in the method, it was like doing a lot of slow, everything slow. And so when I was brought up into this practice, you know, Mahasi was the method, the, the model. So it literally would take us, I would sit and eat lunch for an hour and a half. And, you know, I mean, like you did everything slow. You would walk, like from the annex building, to the meditation hall, literally would take me an hour. An hour. So like to get to the hall in time. <laughs> you did a lot of practice in your room, but you really have to leave early for everything. 
everything was done like super microscopically slow. If you think people are moving slow now, this is like super highway uh, <laughs> compared to those days. I mean, honestly, everything moved incredibly slow. Even people who were doing their work, yogi jobs. <laughs> so not much got done. But, um, but anyway, I'm not, uh, so if you want to do the Mahasi method sometime, um, and you find another center to do it in, uh, <laughs> where you won't get in the way of anybody, uh, maybe in seven days. And what I would say to you realistically is if you don't get enlightened by any chance by noon on Wednesday, since you have no expectations, I guarantee you will not be disappointed. <laughs> you will not be disappointed. You will not be discouraged. You will not be frustrated. You will not be judging your experience. You will be in the present moment as you drive home. Very content. Very content. Okay, so this will be a very brief interview, uh, uh, response. If appropriate, could you review the Four Noble Truths? So just, just as a, there were several questions about insight, what it is, and I'll tie those all together with the Four Noble Truths. And, and for those of you who are new, I mean, many of you who are practicing certainly have heard of the Four Noble Truths, and, and actually it is the framework for what we're doing here. You know, we're, we're not just let's just say we're not just being mindful. We're, we're mindful, but there's a framework, there's a context, there's um, an understanding, there's a direction in practice. Uh, the practice takes us, you know, this practice, the transformation that occurs goes in a certain direction. You know, it's not like you're just floating around out there and kind of hoping something happens. Are you? I hope not. It goes in a direction. And it goes in the direction of liberation from suffering. So when we talk about insight, what we're talking about is, is a deep deepening of uh, understanding of the Four Noble Truths, that framework, that the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are that there's suffering. In the Pali, it's called dukkha. So the first Noble Truth is that there's suffering. And so there's that recognition, that waking up process. Four Noble Truths have everything to do with waking up. And that's where the mindfulness comes in, of course. So it's when you sit and you recognize that you know, you're in conflict or, or, or pain. Uh, that there's turmoil, there's a sense of unsatisfactoriness in your life. Maybe a feeling of meaningless at times, or um, disconnection, or indifference, or confusion. Um, so the mind isn't necessarily happy and content and peaceful. And so when we sit, we recognize that. Most of us rec- have, have already seen that. Otherwise, you might not have decided to, to walk this path. Because mostly, a lot of times, that's the motivation is that we recognize that something is not working for us and we're not, we don't feel at peace. And so we want to try another approach. So first noble truth is the recognition that we're out of balance, um, that we're out of harmony, that, that we're experiencing a lot of non-peace in our life. Second noble truth, so this is, this is, this is as we begin to wake up, we learn, we, we learn more and more uh, about this. In other words, we begin to recognize suffering. That might be the first noble truth. But then we begin to uh, investigate it. Uh, you know, we begin to explore ourselves. For instance, um, if we encounter physical pain in the body, 
we're going to be getting into the Vipassana practice tomorrow, the insight meditation, uh, where the method is going to shift. We're going to build on what we've been doing. And we'll continue working with the primary mindfulness object, but we're definitely going into a direction where we're going into a much more, uh, working with the mindfulness practice in a much more open field of awareness so that we begin to include all aspects of our experience, all aspects of what we encounter uh, in the here and now. So things like physical discomfort, instead of just staying with the breath, we can begin to use that as a mindfulness object. Uh, Sounds, uh, something predominant arises in our experience and we can begin to take that as a mindfulness object. Uh, And so what we're doing is still, we're building on that steadiness of attention, but it's in a field of changing experiences. And so say we were working with mindfulness practice and we're talking about insight here, insight into understanding the nature of suffering and freedom. Okay, So if you encounter physical pain, oftentimes what happens is that triggers a reaction in the mind. In, what, in Buddhist teachings, it's called aversion, not liking that experience. And so what we can see is that there's a sequence. Often, once the mind gets a little quieter, it begins to get to know that sequence. And the sequence is that we have a particular experience and then we relate to it a certain way. So if we experience something pleasant like that bite of food that we had today uh, that we really liked, that olive or whatever it was that we really rejoiced over, um, which very impermanent, of course, but we did rejoice over it, the, the, the conditioned mind will grasp onto it and want more or want that particular experience to last. So there's the pleasant sensation and then the, the reaction to it. And so what the Buddha said was these reactions are conditioned. And so the source of our suffering, why we can't relax and kind of be in the present and sort of appreciate what comes along and, and free enough to respond to it in a wise or skillful way is because of these attachments, because we cling to things or we push them away out of fear. So um, the second noble truth is we begin to shed the light on uh, suffering. We begin to understand the source of suffering. So it's crucial. In other words, when we, we can know that we're suffering, but we might not have a lot of understanding about what the source is of it. And, you know, we do a lot of, like, analyzing and figuring out, but that's not this process. This process is silently observing so that you see in the space of silence or mindfulness exactly the source of what's causing this conflict in you. And, you, and one can actually see it very directly. And you, you'll actually, as practice develops, you'll see it more frequently. And you begin to see that it's often very habitual or subjective, or it's based on your history. So somebody, you know, people, some people cling to certain pleasant sensations, others might not cling to them. Same with un- unpleasant experiences. So second noble truth is understanding uh, the source of suffering. Um, doesn't stop there, there's four, fortunately. Um, there's the third, which is liberation from suffering. In fact, the fact the pos- opens the possibility that we can liberate ourselves, we can change our conditioning. We don't always have to react with fear when we encounter something unpleasant. We don't always have to cling to pleasant experiences. You know, there's freedom. We can experience pleasure and let it go. You know, it's momentary. That's what the Buddha said. Anything pleasant or unpleasant is, is momentary. So if we cling to something pleasant, you know, it's like holding on to a moving train. You know, it's, it's, it's passing by. Uh, but it's not skillful to hold on to it. In fact, as you become more mindful and as, as we develop more awareness and ability to be in the present moment, the fact is we, we experience pleasure more fully. You know, it's not a grim path. 
not at all. We experience life more fully. We, we experience sense, sense doors, uh, smells, tastes, sights, much more clearly. But we don't cling to them as much because we understand if we do, we suffer. And it's not theoretical understanding. It's actually, in fact, you have to be convinced not to hold on. You have to be convinced that pushing it away doesn't work. You know, that you have to be convinced not only that there's another way of relating or that there's another possibility of relating, but what's a skillful relationship. And that's each person's discovery for themselves. As profound as the teachings are, what's more profound is actually looking at your own experience and learning from it rather than relying on what somebody else says, including the Buddha. But the Four Noble Truths provide a framework so that we have an understanding of where this practice goes. And this is the direction insight meditation goes, towards understanding suffering, seeing things as they are, understanding the source, the liberation from suffering, third. And the fourth, thank heavens, is that there's a path. Remember I said the emphasis in Vipassana what I love about it, what inspires me is that it's practical. You can walk it. You know? You, you can... It's a journey. It's accessible. And it's a matter of cultivating wise and skillful and compassionate thoughts and actions, living in harmony with the way things are, you know, living an ethical life based on non-harm, training the mind like we're doing here in a very intensive way, you know, training the mind to be more calm and steady. You know, learning about what wise effort is, that effort without the agenda, but the perseverance. You know, so that's the training. Okay, mindfulness is part of that too, for sure. So that's the practice element. So there's ethical practice. There's the training of the mind on the cushion, formal practice, remembering to be mindful, sitting, doing what you need to do to be mindful, supporting that. That's the practice. And then there's the wisdom you know, aspect of the path, which is seeing clearly into the nature of things, understanding the nature of suffering, understanding the nature of liberation, and seeing it unmistakably. You know, it's not about a belief system. Someone asked about beliefs, Buddhist beliefs. Is it necessary to believe things? No, it's not. It's definitely not. Ne- it's not necessary to believe the Four Noble Truths. What's necessary is, is you practice awareness and you look for yourself and then just see what you discover. But doing it you know, in a steady way. And what I feel is without a method, that's very difficult to do. Without a method and a, and a practice and a framework, that's very difficult to do. One person asked me about a mantra, using a mantra, and and somebody else was talking about um, focusing on the third eye and stuff. Um, So we don't do, we don't practice mantra in this particular tradition. It doesn't mean that mantra isn't valuable or or, uh, useful, um, but that's not this practice. Um, So, uh, you know, mantra is a calming practice, samatha practice. 
in the framework of Buddhism. Uh, but it's a different track, um, and it's not a mantra practice. Everybody knows a mantra is kind of repeating. I've never done one, um, but what I know about it is kind of repeating, and it leads to calm. So it's a concentration practice, I would say, is how I would des- describe it. And you know, we've been doing something close. You know, the practice we've been doing is a samadhi practice. It's a calming practice. So it it comes closer in that category to a mantra because a mantra is also um, your, your mantra is kind of your primary object that you keep coming back to. I don't think it's a mindfulness practice, but it, it's an object to, to concentrate on. But when we move to the Vipassana, it's clear that it, this is fundamentally different than a mantra. And what we would encourage you to do if you, if you are doing a mantra is at least temporarily for the rest of the retreat, let it go and do the mindfulness practice and give this a go. That way you can decide for yourself at the end you know, whether this might be a useful addition to your practice or whether it's useful for you. Uh, but if you, don't, if you don't abandon the mantra, at least for this period of time, you, you might not um, benefit as much from this particular practice or at least get a chance to explore this practice. I think it's always useful when you put yourself in a context like this to really try your best. Uh, you know, there's little variations, of course, in this freedom around you know, integrating certain things that you already do, for sure. But, it's, but the basic, I think, um, attitude, I think, the most useful is to try it if you knew, and really give it a go, because it is only five days, and see where it takes you. And then at the end of that, you make an assessment, and we always encourage that, make an assessment about whether it was useful or not, what was it like. And sometimes we make an assessment on the first day, or the second day, and that's too early. So don't do that. Wait, and keep going, and see where it goes, because, it, because retreat and retreat life changes quite a bit uh, as things unfold. So be open to that possibility of change. In fact, the method we're going to be working with um, is changing somewhat. <coughs> Already answered that. Okay, there's a question here. How many years of practice does one need before acting mindfully, seeing clearly, making choices not out of fear, and living not out of reaction? It's an excellent question. Um, I don't think you can... um, You can't really measure something like that. Okay? I mean, I think, first of all, I think it's important to see that Dharma practice, that's what we're doing, Dharma practice, in the language of the Buddha, Dharma practice. I see it as a lifetime of learning. That's how I see it. And from my perspective, you know, I'm a slow learner. It takes me a while. Um, I'm still learning. I've been on it for quite a while. Um, I'm convinced from my own direct experience that it's very liberating, that it certainly leads to freedom, and that it's an unfolding process where times where there are times when it... uh, (coughs) Very deep insights arise, or some kind of real shift in consciousness occurs, where you see yourself and the planet in a very different way. Um, those insights come along the way. It's part of what it's about, but it's also part about continuing the practice and not getting attached to any of that, and continuing to work and clear up any ignorance or confusion or delusion um, that you might have 
so it's a it's an ongoing practice is how I see it. Okay, so so it's not like you can do it for five years and in, in you know you're done. I don't think that's true. I've I've studied with the Chan master, and I spent maybe ten years practicing with him. You know, off and on, I'd go to his retreats basically a few times a year. So I wasn't like always there. Um, and um, what was what's wonderful like that? What was wonderful for me is that I knew he knew so much more than me. I mean, like he's way beyond me. Clearly, you know, he, I you know I'm a Vipassana teacher. He, he treated with me with enormous amount of respect, which I was a little surprised at. I'm uh, like a little junior, uh, I guess like mini me maybe or something, you know, like tiny little being next to him in terms of his understanding. You know, he was, he was clearly, from my perspective, very enlightened. And it wasn't like an idealistic, I wasn't idolizing him or anything. I just could tell you know, uh, that he knew much more and he was extremely humble and modest, uh, which I really appreciated and very practical and down to earth. Um, but, you know, one thing he used to say is that, you know, he's working, he's practicing. You know, it's like practice doesn't end. And somebody, you know, if I had that understanding, I think, oh, God, I'm done. Uh, you know, the amount of peace and clarity in that mind was terrific. Um, he was somebody I thought really did know a lot about enlightenment. Uh, but, you know, he definitely felt like there was work to do. And you could see it. And he did it. He worked. And a lot of his work was around service, too. I mean, he was really concerned about the planet. Uh, he was really concerned about making a difference in the world. You know, he used to go to all these world conferences and climate change conferences and things like that. So he was very connected to the world. He wasn't a recluse, but he was profoundly awake. Uh, and when he said he was working on himself, I believed it, definitely. So again, I think if you have that perspective, it's very liberating. Because then you don't reduce the spiritual path to what your experience is on a five-day retreat. You know. Oh, Sheng Yen, Master Sheng Yen. I'll leave a note on the board. Yes. Do you know him? Oh, okay. Yeah, Matt. I'll just put his note up on the board. Just his name, if you want to look him up. I mean, his teachings are great. Very compatible with this particular approach. Relaxed. He was the one who really taught me a lot about relaxation. And I, I needed it. So I valued it. But, it. but it's the kind of relaxation that comes out of uh, training. Well, maybe, maybe one more. We're, we're getting close to the end of time. We're probably going to have another Q&A on Tuesday. Um, night. So um, we'll probably go through this same process again. So if you have questions that bubble up around the, the Vipassana. Also, we are going to be doing groups again, so that's a good chance to bring up any of the questions that, say you wrote, you know, any questions that you might have uh, put down, we didn't, obviously didn't answer some of them. Um, oh, I, I did want to address one thing, which was um, my good friend, my old good friend, Larry Rosenberg. Uh, you know, many of you are his students, and, and it certainly has been coming up in the groups how much you miss him. And of course, we miss him too. Um, and, and I actually kind of feel like he's here. You know, I've just done this retreat so often. Uh, you know, I definitely get it with him. Uh, and, um, 
you know, I think one thing just not to be concerned about is health because he's been through this many times and it, it literally is just a bad cold. Uh, but secondly, I thought um, what we would do at the end of the retreat is, is if you wanted to just express something to him. Um, I wouldn't like ask, give him your email and expect a reply because he doesn't do that actually. He's like beyond that at this point. Um, but if you wanted to express some gratitude or sentiment or just acknowledge uh, what your feelings were about him, you could, we'll, we'll collect it. We'll, there'll be a place someplace by the board where we would collect that and, and pass it on to him. I'll, I'll get it to him in Cambridge. But uh, yeah, sure, it's always difficult when, um, you know, we love somebody and we value what they have to say. And, they, and Larry has a lot to say and a lot to offer. Um, and then, you know, to come to a retreat and have them not come, you know, it, it's a difficult um, letting go that, that that has to occur. And it becomes part of your practice. It becomes actually part of the retreat. And I think that's good because Larry won't always be around and neither will any of us. So um, that's the reality. And so, you know, as much as we might love someone, we definitely don't want to invest all our happiness in that one person either. But um, when Larry goes, it would be a tough one for me, I can tell you that. I and mean, I might go first. I'm suspicious of that, actually. He talks a lot about death, but I feel that I think I might beat him to it. So we'll see. That's it, I think. So let's sit for a minute. Settle. So please be mindful as you make your way up from your cushion, remembering to, you know, very gentle effort to make, to bring that quality of fresh attention. Mindfulness is fresh. allows us to meet this new moment. Like right now is a new moment in the retreat. It's actually a new moment in your life. You've never been here before. The surroundings look very familiar, uh, but this moment you actually haven't been here. It's changing. Something has changed. Talk. Q&A is over, and we're getting up and moving the body mindfully. Thank you. Mm-hmm.